Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, Episode 21. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to focus on the so-called Eroica Variations, Opus 35, also known as 15 Variations and Fugue on an Original Theme. Beethoven's Eroica, or Prometheus Variations, using Beethoven's original designation, were the second set of variations composed in 1802. The six variations on an original theme in F major, Opus 34, being the other. Beethoven attempted to interest his publishers, Breitkopf and Hartel in this case, in both sets at once, putting particular emphasis on their originality of approach and referring to them as having been written in an entirely new style. Of course, the fact that each was awarded a separate opus number at this point in his career indicates that Beethoven must have considered them substantial works, and Beethoven informed his publishers that he had included both sets of variations on his list of greater musical works. We're going to skip over the opus 34 variations, although they certainly have some points of interest, and devote most of our attention today to Opus 35. Why are composers attracted to certain kinds of themes for the purpose of writing variations on them? Clearly, in some cases, it's because the themes, regardless of authorship, are simply distinctive or in some way intriguing in and of themselves. At other times, a well-known melody, often by a different composer, will be employed because the composer of the variations knows that the title itself will pull potential performers and listeners in. Certainly the case when Beethoven composed his variations on familiar Mozart melodies or widely known melodies such as God Save the King and Rule Britannia. But in other instances, a composer might be attracted to a theme, whether his or her own or someone else's, because he or she sees potential in it, and very likely hidden potential for generating a group of variations that may well be more interesting by far than the melody itself. This would seem to be the case for the theme we encounter in Opus 35. It had obviously made an appearance earlier in a contradance composed by the very young Beethoven, probably in the early 1790s, and as you may remember from episode 18 in his ballet score, The Creatures of Prometheus. At any rate, the composer clearly believed that much more could be made of this particular theme, which, as you may recall, has two components. The distinctive bass line itself, which he often referenced independently, and the melody which sometimes appears above it. Of course, variations on a theme often include the chord progression originally used to harmonize the theme as part of the raw material that could be subject to variation. But by the early 19th century, the idea of writing variations over a bass line by itself was less common than it had been in the late Renaissance and Baroque periods. Later in the century, that would not necessarily be the case, and there are some famous examples of that type of variations by Brahms and others, but it was largely true in Beethoven's period. I mentioned the earlier orchestral contradance. Here is the first part of it. It features an eight-bar repeated first section that ends on the dominant 
in a contrasting second section, which returns to the tonic. Now, in its third incarnation, as the theme for the Prometheus or Eroica variations, Beethoven introduces the theme initially by its bass line alone in the first part of a four-part introduction. Here's the first part, marked Allegretto Vivace, and prefaced by a fortissimo E-flat tonic chord. It's in two eight-bar sections, mostly pianissimo, and you'll notice that the second of these sections includes a couple of measures of silence separated by three loud staccato eighth notes, and after that, a fermata on the dominant note. The last four bars return us to the tonic chord. The second part of the introduction, which is played immediately after the first without pause, keeps the bass line intact, of course, but adds above it a simple melody that fleshes out the harmonic implications of the bass line, while providing a little passing chromaticism in the process. And speaking of those harmonic implications, I never really explained them in the earlier Prometheus episode, so I'll do so briefly here. The implied harmonies are simple and straightforward for the most part. For the first four bars of the first section, we hear a simple alternation of implied tonic chords and dominant or dominant seventh chords. In terms of harmonic rhythm, things start to move a little more quickly in the next four bars. Again, we hear an alternation of tonic and dominant chords, but now with a change on every beat in measures five and six. And on the last eighth note of measure six, we hear a chromatic alteration. The E-flat moves up to E-natural, which provides a hint that we may be moving toward a new tonal center. And in the second to last bar, the bass line starts moving in eighth notes, with another chromatic alteration, this time setting up a secondary dominant chord. This chord, and we've noticed some secondary dominant chords previously, highlights the dominant chord in bar 8 by preceding it with its dominant chord. This is another one of those cases where the verbal description makes it seem more complicated than it really is. Here is the first section, the first eight bars, of the second part of the introduction.
So the first eight measures section closes on a dominant chord. But of course, when we take the repeat, it goes right back to the original tonic chord, and we hear the whole eight measures again. But in the second eight bars, things are a little different. We stay on the dominant chord for four whole measures, although over that chord, Beethoven here weaves a melody which also includes some chromatic alterations and which is, at times, dissonant with the underlying chords. The first four bars of this second section come to something of a climax in the fourth measure with a fermata on the dominant chord of B-flat and a change in tempo to poco adagio and a hint of a cadenza. But the last four bars return to the original tempo and make it clear that we really are back in E-flat major, closing with a clear cadence in that key. Here is the second eight-bar section. The third part of the introduction, which might really be thought of as a pre-variation variation, moves up the bass line into the treble clef octave and places it against another simple melody made up primarily of scale lines and triadic arpeggios. The final part of the introduction, or pre-variation, is the most ambitious in terms of providing melodic activity against the bass line, which this time has been moved to the top voice. But underneath, both in the right hand and left hand, we hear a much more rhythmically interesting countermelody, abounding with distinctive patterns of eighth notes followed by two sixteenths, and multiple sixteenth note scale fragments and arpeggio patterns sometimes doubled in thirds. Overall, quite a bit busier than the earlier pre-variations. Finally, flowing directly out of the fourth pre-variation, we are presented with what Beethoven identifies as the theme, and by which he means the melody originally assigned to the accompanying bass line. It's in the top voice, and accompanied rather modestly for the most part, with offbeat eighth note chords, although a more active accompaniment of sixteenth notes is added beneath the melody halfway through the first section. With the addition of the melody, and especially the ascending scale-wise runs introduced in the second eight-bar section, the theme now, understandably, sounds much more complete and finished. The final eight bars of the second section bring back the motive, now in varied form, from the first four bars of the first section. Here it is, designated as the actual theme, minus the repeats. Bye. 
The first variation, actually labeled as such, is a fairly simple but rather busy one, relying on ascending arpeggio figures, scale fragments, lower neighbor tone figures, and octave leaps, all while referencing the key notes of the original melody within its recurring patterns of sixteenth notes. The bass line generally follows the bass line from the original theme. The second variation replaces the 16th note arpeggios with 16th note triplets, descending and ascending. Like the first variation, it moves to rapid alternations between octaves in the last four bars of the first section. But the second eight-bar section introduces some new elements, most notably an extended cadenza passage in the middle of it, only hinted at earlier, but found much more fully developed here. It begins with more rapid triplet-based arpeggios, but finishes with a sweeping sforzando ascending chromatic scale, spanning over four octaves. Following the cadenza-like passage, we return to the triplet figures, now trading off between lower neighbor tone motives and descending arpeggios. I'm not going to play or comment on all of the variations, in part because of time limitations, and in part because some of them are simply less notable than others. But there are some disadvantages to my approach, since the effect a particular variation makes is to some extent dependent on the effect made by the one right before it, or the ones before it. But cognizant of the perspective that we're losing here, I'm still going to pick and choose. So, we'll turn next to Variation 5. It's in 2-4 time, considerably quieter and less flashy, less bravura, and almost introspective in tone. It's much easier to trace the variation melody here, although it's much decorated and disguised somewhat by a gently syncopated motive which alternates with a 16th note turning motive. After 4 bars, the melody shifts down to the left hand. Here is the first eight-bar section, which crescendos as it unfolds. The second half of this variation is almost ethereal as it hovers on the dominant seventh chord for four measures. It's again rather quiet, although the syncopations from the first section are bolstered a bit with sforzando accents here. There's no cadenza this time, and the original bass line, double to tenth higher, is heard clearly in the last four bars.
Variation 6 is the first minor key variation, in the relative minor of C minor, and it's a bombastic one. The melody now sounding a bit more ominous, of course, even though it begins fairly quietly, is quoted in the top voice of the right hand in its original rhythmic configuration against thunderous leaping octaves in the left, especially striking in measure 5, where we shift to forte. As we move to the second section, Beethoven continues to follow the original thematic design fairly closely, again placing a fermata in measure 4, although this time on an F minor chord rather than on the dominant. He adds to the scheme by some echoing back and forth between right and left hands on the ascending 16th note motive that begins the second section. Here are both sections without repeat. This time, the second section was not simply repeated, but actually written out, so that Beethoven could, in the last four bars, engineer a clever modulation back to E-flat major to prepare for the next variation. The next variation, number seven, has some distinctive qualities of its own, not the least of which is the fact that it proceeds as a canon at the octave. We're back in E-flat major now, two-four time, and featuring a much thinner texture, at least in the first section. Canons, of course, are thought of as a learned device, but this one sounds effortless and natural, even a little frisky because of the constant staccato markings in the melody played high in the treble clef range and the canonic answer, which comes an octave lower one beat later. The melody itself is marked by large leaps and lacks any obvious similarities with the original theme, although the harmonic progression associated with that theme is generally followed. Here is the first section with repeat. The second section has a much clearer relationship with the original theme, or at least its baseline, but provides some interesting new quirks. You'll recall that in Beethoven's initial presentation of the baseline, he included in the second measure of the second section three sforzando staccato eighth notes on the dominant or fifth of the scale, clearly implying a repeated dominant chord. That idea, those repeated sforzando staccato notes, is considerably developed here. Starting with an upbeat to the first measure of the second section, he repeats four staccato eighth notes, all sforzando, in the left hand. It comes as a bit of a jolt, just as it did in the first appearance of the bass line. But it actually comes as even more of a jolt here, because he doesn't simply repeat the fifth note of the scale, the B-flat, in octaves as he did originally, but instead combines that B-flat with the seventh of a dominant seventh chord on B-flat. The note is actually an A-flat, right next to the B-flat, and he also doubles that A-flat an octave higher as well. It's a pretty abrasive dissonance, especially so low in the piano's range, but it isn't really done for the purpose of building tension or as a dramatic gesture. 
It's really just Beethoven being quirky, having some fun with his own theme, and perhaps introducing a little irony into the equation, especially telling after the learned canon heard in the first section of the variation, although that canon was, it must be admitted, itself fairly light-hearted. Here's the second section with repeats. We'll move on now to Variation 8, which has a delicate and again almost ethereal feel to it in the first section. The melody assigned to the left hand and placed high above the arpeggiated chords in the right hand has little, if anything, to do with the original theme. The harmonies do generally follow the prototype, except for one very poignant and effective substitution at the beginning of the third measure, where a diminished seventh chord on D replaces the expected dominant seventh chord on B-flat. The two chords are very close, they contain only one different note, and by the second half of the measure, the unexpected note has disappeared, and we hear the regular dominant seventh chord we expected. But that one difference, a C-flat or B-natural, rather than a B-flat, even for a relatively brief time, makes a world of difference and colors the entire progression in a way that is unique for this set of variations. The left hand, continuing with the melody, now drops below the accompanying chords and quotes the original bass line for a couple of measures. Then it scoots up two and a half octaves for the final two measures of the section. Here is just the first section with repeat. The second section, although still relying heavily on 16th note arpeggiation figures, comes closer to the original bass line, again sitting on the dominant 7th chord for the first four bars, with a fermata in the same place as in the prototype. After that, the original harmonic progression is largely followed, and the melody makes use of yearning chromatic half-steps in a way very comparable to that heard in the second section of the original melody. Variation 9 is brimming with robustness, but also more of that quirky humor we heard in Variation 7. It's in 2-4 time, as usual, and marks sempre forte. Melodically, it consists primarily of a series of ascending and descending triadic arpeggios and octave leaps doubled in thirds in the right hand. 
Its most obvious link to the original theme, again, comes in the left-hand part, which, in the first section, consists of a series of half notes, quarters, and eighth notes, all repeating the dominant note, B-flat. This fits in perfectly well with the rather gymnastic right-hand melodic pattern, since it outlines tonic and dominant chords only. The distinctive element in all of this shows up in Beethoven's left-hand grace notes, because the grace notes do in fact follow the contour of the original bass line. The resulting almost drone-like effect is really rather novel. The approach taken in the second section is a little different. The right hand is still dominated by triplet arpeggios, doubled in thirds, and octave leaps, but after the first two measures, the bass line moves away from the repeated B-flats, first to arpeggiate down a B-flat triad, and then to move in sixths with the original prototype bass line, still heard in the grace notes below. Here's the second section with the repeat that takes us to the end of the variation. The first section of Variation 10, also in 2-4 time, is much more delicate, almost mercurial in nature, initially marked piano, but crescendoing from the fifth bar. It too repeats the B-flat in the left hand throughout the first section, while the right hand presents quick little three-note motives in sixteenth notes, which follow the original chord progression to an extent, but with some chromatic inflections not heard before in these variations. Here's the first section with repeat. The second section of the original theme was all about deploying the dominant chord for four bars in a row leading to a fermata. But in this second section, Beethoven is back to his old disruptive tricks, with dynamic levels beginning piano, but almost immediately crescendoing up to fortissimo, he pounds the B-flat into our ears in alternation with its upper neighbor tone, C-flat. In fact, it's the C-flat that is most prominent here, as we fade down to pianissimo. Then, after the fermata, we crescendo back up to forte as he reverts back to the quick little three-note sixteenth-note motives and relatively sparse texture of the first section. Variations 11 and 12 are both clever and pleasant, especially number 11. But we're going to move on to number 13, where Beethoven resurrects his grace note idea, but in the top voice, where the B-flat is repeated on the first beat of each measure for the entire first section. Meanwhile, the first beat of every bar in the left-hand bass line takes on the melodic function 
while following the original harmonic progression. The second section sustains the dominant chord of B-flat as in the original, but does so by arpeggiating it in slow motion in the right hand, each note once again adorned by a grace note. After the expected fermata in measure 4, the bass line takes over the original prototype bass line, and the right hand melody repeats grace noted E-flats high in its range until the last two measures, where it finally moves a half step down to the leading tone D, and then right back to E-flat at the cadence. Variation 14 is a more conventional and rather expressive minor key variation this time in E-flat minor. The original bass line is presented in the top voice, while the left hand places against it an expressive descending scale line. By the fifth measure, the texture has become more complex and partially chordal, with a new inner voice introduced in the right hand, touching briefly on C-flat major, and characterized by rather sensuous chromatic movement. There is no repeated section here, the equivalent of the repeated first section is written out, with the prototype bass line now having shifted to the left hand, over which an expressive new melody is introduced. Here are the first 16 bars. When we arrive at the equivalent of the second section, Beethoven sustains the dominant seventh chord as usual, but places against it in the right hand a series of expressively dissonant chords beginning on the upbeat of every second measure, chords which completely transform the aura of the original passage leading to the fermata. After the fermata, the upbeat chords in the right hand continue, and the left hand continues to quote the original bass line, but because of octave shifting, it's a little difficult to follow. The section concludes on an E-flat minor chord, and there is an immediate tempo switch to adagio, and a hint of a cadenza delivers us to the first chord of the final variation, which is in 6-8 and marked largo. Let's hear from measure 17 through the beginning of the final variation.
Back in E-flat major, the final largo movement is obviously a sensitive and very florid one that does reference the original bass line, even if it's often obscured by the flowing ornamentation. Eventually, it passes into a coda, which forces us for the moment back to C minor, with a new series of dotted rhythm motives which summon up the original theme, a minor key version, of course, in a passage which crescendos and decrescendos constantly, concluding finally on the dominant of C minor with a chord spaced quite low in the piano's range. Here are the final bars of the final variation going into the coda. The fugue comes next, in E-flat major, 2-4 time, and marked Allegro con brio. To no one's surprise, it is based on the first four notes of the original bass line, presented primarily in half notes with a little tail of descending 16th notes, which then continues on as a busy counter-subject. The subject is presented first in the alto voice, and the first imitation comes in at the fifth in the soprano voice. Five measures after that, the subject enters in the bass voice, back on the original tonic. After five measures, we arrive at a clear cadence, which is somewhat surprisingly on B-flat minor. It's just a temporary stop, of course, the first part of a two-measure sequential pattern. Two bars later, we hear a cadence on A-flat major. And the momentum doesn't flag at all as we enter a brief four-measure episode dominated by rhythmically energetic motives from the tail end of the subject. There's really not a convenient stopping point here, but let's hear it that far. Then the soprano enters with its own version of the subject, 
back in E-flat major and introduced by a quick trill. You heard just a little bit of it at the end of my previous excerpt. The first two bars are easy enough to recognize, but by the third, the fugue subject has migrated down to the alto voice in a slightly embellished and shortened version. Meanwhile, the soprano voice, the top line in the right hand, produces a fragment of a countermelody against it, and the left hand carries on with 16th note scale fragments to keep the energy level high. In the blink of an eye, the subject reappears in the soprano line, starting on F this time, but again in a modified and abbreviated version. Four bars later, the alto takes another turn, starting on G, this time in the complete version of the fugue subject. Then the soprano comes back again on C, again with the complete version. After another brief, non-imitative episode, the bass enters with the subject on B-flat. We'll hear it beginning where my last excerpt ended at the modified entrance of the soprano voice to the completion of the bass's entrance. From that point on, the fugue is less about conventional fugal imitation and more about varying and developing the entire original theme, the melody as well as the bass line, almost more like a development section in a sonata form movement. At times, Beethoven will reduce the texture substantially and begin the imitation of the original bass line all over again, usually against a constant flow of 16th notes adapted from the countersubject. But even here, the subject is usually somewhat varied. For example, its descending tail of 16th notes now taking on an ascending form. And although Beethoven thins out the texture to reintroduce the subject from time to time, it isn't long before he once again builds it up to an impressive sonority level. Eventually, all of this frenetic activity comes to an end, and three thick chords evoking the opening notes of the subject once again are sustained by three fermatas. We then shift to adagio and a pair of chords setting up a cadence back on E-flat major. This is followed by a cadenza-like swirl that takes us back to the original theme, the melody rather than just the bass line 
which is presented andante con moto and then subject to some final variations before a brief coda concludes the entire work. It's almost hard to believe that, given the near-exhaustive treatment of this theme in this set of variations, whether the melody and bass line together or bass line by itself, Beethoven would feel that there is a substantial amount more that could be done with it. And yet, in the finale of Symphony No. 3 in E-flat, the Eroica Symphony, that is exactly what he accomplishes. But that, of course, is a story for another day. For the remainder of this episode, I want to take an appreciative glance at a handful of bagatelles from Opus 33. We're shifting gears dramatically here by going to the bagatelles. It's certainly true that some of Beethoven's earlier sets of variations were designed to be playable by talented amateurs, but that is obviously not the case for all of the Prometheus-slash-Eroica variations. It is largely true of the bagatelles, however. The name, which indicates a musical trifle, derives from the French. François Couperin is usually credited with having produced the first piece with that title. By Beethoven's time, the title usually implied a shorter character piece, perhaps of an improvisatory nature and often with a tongue-in-cheek quality. The autograph manuscript of the first of these bagatelles has a scribbled date of 1782 in the upper right-hand margin. The same score is marked Opus 33, probably in a different hand. Is the 1782 date a later addition to the score, made by Beethoven unable to recall the original date of composition, or could any of these pieces possibly have been composed that early? The set of seven pieces were not collected and completed until 1802, but it is possible that within this set, Beethoven did make use of some very early ideas. The first bagatelle, in E-flat major and 6-8 time, is in a loose A-B-A form. The first part is in two sections. The initial melodic idea for the first is fairly simple, beginning with an arpeggiated tonic chord and falling into two similar four-bar phrases with measure four acting as a more florid link between them. The harmonies are also simple, unfolding over a tonic pedal with the only chromaticism in the form of raised neighbor tones. Here is the first eight bars. The second section of the first part, the A section, is more rhythmically dynamic with groups of three staccato repeated eighth notes leaping up to an accented upper neighbor tone. The second four bars largely duplicate the first four up an octave, now harmonized in block chords and with a bass line moving in contrary motion to the melody. Beethoven then develops the repeated eighth note idea, transforming them into sixteenths and crescendoing to forte and a cadence on B-flat major. After a short transition based on rapid descending scale fragments, a more embellished version of the first section returns.
the contrasting middle section or B section returns to a more lyrical flow, but initially in E-flat minor. After 12 bars, we encounter another transition, this time made up of six measures of 16th note scale runs. This leads us back to the A section. It's somewhat varied, but still clearly recognizable. Here is the contrasting middle section, beginning in E-flat minor and coming back to the A section. After the varied A section comes to an end, there is another transition, and the A section returns again, leading to a brief coda. The form is admittedly a bit diffuse. Commentator Paul Lewis has stated, The formal proportions of the piece are way off base, with trivial transition sections and routine cadencing patterns hilariously repeated and developed beyond their musical merits. The second of the Opus 33 Bagatelles is designated as a scherzo. It's in C major, 3-4 time, and marked allegro. Like many such movements, it falls into three large sections. The first begins with a simple but strangely offbeat melodic idea, which initially may strike the listener as beginning with a pickup note going to an accented first beat. It becomes clear enough that that is not the case when Beethoven repeats the basic idea again and again. But even after the 16-bar section is completed, the initial idea still seems a bit wrong-footed. Beethoven next takes us into A minor, the relative minor, with a strongly contrasting B section that unfolds very slowly and without a great deal of melodic interest. Here it is without repeat. After Beethoven returns us to the first section of the scherzo, we move on to the trio. It's in C major, and its thematic ideas are really quite basic, consisting primarily of ascending scale lines, or fragments of scales, generally ascending and sometimes doubled in thirds. It begins quietly, but crescendos to the end, with some weak beat accents adding to the rhythmic energy. Here's the first part of the trio. 
The second part of the trio continues in much the same vein, but does toy briefly with C minor halfway through the section. Bagatelle number no. four is an unpretentiously elegant little piece in A major, two four time, and marked andante. Lewis refers to it as a parody of a sugary musette, and it is marked dolce, and it does unfold over a series of musette like drones. Still, I'm not sure Beethoven necessarily thought of it as a parody or if he did, it seems as if it were one for which he had some affection. Here are the first two sections of the first part. The middle section in A minor is quite different. Lewis points to the fact that it demonstrates much more harmonic variety than the first section, but bemoans the fact that it is all accompaniment and no melody. Lewis is correct, of course, there is no melody in a conventional late 18th century sense. But, on the other hand, this contrasting section in A minor may be the perfect antidote to the perhaps excessively sugary melody in the first section, which it returns to after it completes its 14-measure digression. We'll look at one more bagatelle from Opus 33. It must be admitted that Beethoven's later collections of bagatelles have generally been more admired than this first one. But there is one piece in this set that is usually acknowledged as being rather successful, if not without flaws. Number six in D major in 2-4 and marked Allegretto Quasi Andante, with an indication to the performer of with a speaking quality of expression. The initial idea is simple yet charming, a somewhat poignant opening two-measure phrase starting on the third scale degree, followed by a rather flippant cadence that takes us down to the tonic note. The first four measures are then repeated up an octave. Here is the first eight-bar section 
with repeat. The next eight bar section begins on the same note an octave higher, but immediately reveals itself as the fifth scale degree in B minor, which Beethoven pauses on at the end of the initial two measure phrase. We might well expect some sort of elegiac continuation of the relative minor, but Beethoven cuts it short. By the fourth measure, he pushes us back to D major and repeats the eight measure first section again. Beethoven then opts for a mini-development section, where he takes the opening two-measure idea and develops it into measure sequences, first to A major, then back to B minor, and eventually F-sharp minor. It's almost dramatic, especially when we crescendo up to fortissimo and then fade away to a fermata. But this dramatic surge comes to an end before it can achieve any momentum and soon we're back to the original theme as if it had never occurred. Although, after the first repetition of that theme, we hear it again, both sections, in a new version, freely embellished with 16th note runs. Here's an excerpt beginning with the mini-development and extending to the beginning of the more embellished version of the original theme. A little coda closes the piece, one that has remarkably little to do with anything we've heard to this point. But it's pleasant enough with its pedal-like syncopated repetition of the tonic note against a descending flow of first thirds and later alternating tonic, subdominant, and dominant seventh chords. Here is the last part of the florid version of the theme going into the coda. This piece hints at more promise than it delivers, but that is also true of some of the composer's later bagatelles, and is perhaps part of their charm. And according to Beethoven authority Louis Lockwood, this is the only one of the set that has a pensive, touching quality. We'll stop there for this episode, and for the next, 
We'll look at Beethoven's Symphony No. 2 in D major, Opus 36.